In any other year, a $60 million bribery scheme in the Columbus State House would be the biggest story of the year. But with five months left in 2020, it's number three behind the coronavirus and social justice. It's still huge, though, and worthy of full discussion. So welcome to a special episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn, here with my colleagues Jane Cahoon, Chris Warnowski, and a special guest, our Statehouse reporter, Jeremy Pelzer. Welcome all. Hey. Hello. Hey. So let's, we're going to get into unanswered questions that, that are out there from this corruption scandal. But I want to start with a fantastic story Jeremy had uh, just published today on the one guy, the one honest guy in this whole corruption scheme who actually went to the feds to say, hey, something bad is happening here. Jeremy, he talked to you and you really brought the humanity of his situation and his struggle because he was basically turning in a friend. Talk a little bit about how you you found him and what his general attitude was as he talked to you about this. Sure. Well, uh, thanks. First, thanks for having me on. Uh, so his name is Tyler Furman. He's a Columbus political consultant. And he is, uh, like you said, one of, one of the few decent, honest guys uh, to come out of this whole scandal. Uh, I've known Tyler uh, for a few years. Um, he has done a lot of consulting work. He used to be with actually Team Householder. But um, as you say now, I, I just started calling around uh, once this all broke, and I happened to call him. And he, you know, uh, said he said he'd be willing to talk to me. And he said, yeah, I was one of those people who was wearing the wire. And so, uh, as you say, he so, so step so step back a little bit. Yeah. His his specific job was working for the people who were trying to get the three or billion dollar plus bailout of First Energy's nuclear plants on the ballot, so voters could have a say. That was, it turns out, completely undermined by illegal doings, as uh, articulated in federal court documents. So he was working for the the people who were trying to get it on the ballot. What happened to him that made him interesting to investigators? Well, he actually went to investigators because he initially got this job and then Matt Borges, one of the people charged in this whole case, allegedly came to him and said, hey, can you be a mole inside this referendum campaign for us? And we'll, I'll start by giving you $15,000 to help us out. And and, you know, if you just put yourself in your shoes, in Tyler's shoes, about that, you know, Matt Borges, he says, was someone who was a close friend, someone who was a mentor, and he had to think about it. And to his credit, within a few minutes, without the FBI even getting involved, he said, no, I'm not going to do this. And then he went to the FBI on his own. Well, what was interesting, Jeremy, and this is all in the document, I mean, he basically told Borges that he couldn't live with himself if he did that to the people who had hired him, that, that he couldn't look himself in the mirror. I mean, it's so nice to see somebody with a conscience stand up and do the right thing when so many in this case did not. Um, but then, I mean, he took the step of going to the FBI to say it had happened, which is, which is even more proactive. Right. Like imagine yourself, you, you your good friend did something wrong and you had to 
put yourself in the position of wearing a wire next time you saw the person and act like everything's normal with one of your good friends. Like this took not just a lot of chutzpah, it, you know, and a lot of bravery, but it, it, it got pretty scary for him, you said. And he and he was thinking about how Matt Borges has children and, and you know, if Matt Borges gets in trouble with the law, what it means to his family. Uh, but but he decided in the end he had to do the right thing, that this was what the, the whole operation that Borges and others were were building illegally had to be stopped. And that's that's what drove him to wear wire and work with the FBI. So it's a, it's a great story, really puts you into his head. So so well done. I wanted to talk about that. Could I just say third. something about that, too? I mean, Jeremy, when I read this, I could just feel this guy's nervousness. And I really liked his candor when you quoted him as saying, you know, when the FBI asked him to wear this wire, he said, well, I'd like to say that I like jumped right on that and said, yeah, sure. But but he, he just was honest that this was like a big step for him. Yeah, this is Chris Warnowski. I, it, it, I, I, it's, maybe it's because we're so cynical about the current state of politics, but it, it almost seems like a small miracle to, to see somebody <laughs> like come out and be, you know, to talk about having a conscience and, and, and to, and to, and to show how, how much agony he went through in, in deciding to do the right thing. I mean, it's, it's and he said he would do it again, which was, was interesting, despite all that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I you know, we throw around the word hero a lot. He is a hero of this case. Absent people like him, this scam would be continuing. So way to go and get in that story, Jeremy. That was a that was a great exclusive. All right. So let's let's talk about some of the questions that are that are outstanding here. And Jeremy, you're the expert on one of them, so I'm glad you're here. And that is <laughs> How much of a bailout was actually needed? Now that we know that First Energy paid $60 million in bribes to get this done, as according to the, the federal charges, you wondered, did you really need a billion-dollar-plus bailout? And, and there's evidence that you didn't. They claimed they were broke, they were bankrupt, and they, that the, they couldn't afford to keep these plants going without this infusion of cash. But as soon as they got it, they paid off $300 million to investors, and they paid $60 million in bribes. Way back when this was going on, Jeremy, we asked you to dig into it, to see if you could figure out whether they actually needed the money. And you did a very nuanced story. The takeaway I got was everybody's just making stuff up, and it's going to be very hard to say what their real needs are. Talk a little bit about that story from a year ago. Well, one of the things that really stunk from the get-go about this deal was first Energy Solutions, which is now Energy Harbor, wouldn't say how much. They wouldn't open their books. They wouldn't say how much they're losing. So everyone had to rely on these extrapolations and like kind of read the tea leaves indirectly from these uh, statistics, uh, statistics they would put out about how much they were making or losing. And it, it was very weird at the time because... You know, like if you're talking about more than a billion dollars of money and you're not relying on hard facts, you're just kind of relying on extrapolations. That was one of the very weird things about this from the start. But the reason they knew they didn't have to open their books is because they had the fix in. I mean, it is colossally amazing. I mean, it's just it. it this is one of the, the, the most striking facts of this case. They got the Ohio legislature, Ohio governor 
to go with a bill that takes $1.3 billion out of the ratepayers of Ohio and dedicate it mostly to them without ever showing proof that they needed it. And, that, you know, what's wrong with this picture? Of course, we were throwing the flag. Everybody was calling this out. This was not done in the dark, but because the fix was in, nothing happened about it. So now we know. So, so the question is, how much do they actually need? If this gets repealed, we have legislators and the governor seeking to repeal it and start and we start over. Will we get that? Will they have to show their hand? Will we get actual facts that justify how much they get? It's a really you know, good question. <laughs> yeah, I, I noticed that the, the, the last time around, they cited the bankruptcy proceedings and all these non-disclosure agreements that they had as the reason that they couldn't divulge this stuff. So, you know, unless they say those non-disclosure agreements went away, that we'll probably get the but, same answer. But, you know? but Jane Cahoon, if I'm asking you <laughs> to give me a billion dollars and you say, I, I need to see your books, Chris. I mean, I trust you, but I need to see them. And I say, well, I can't I do whatever them. you tell me to do. I, I, and, I, and, I, and I say, I can't show them to you. Your answer is going to be, well, then I'm not giving you the billion dollars. Right. I mean, it's not. Oh, what okay. normally happens. This isn't a normal world. I mean, <laughs> Jeremy described uh, in another story, I think, how surreal it was to watch some of this testimony where you'd have um, one expert who was probably paid, you know, by the natural gas people or something saying, oh, they're very profitable. And then the next expert comes in and says, oh, no, they're losing money. You know, it's like a cynical person, you know, would say you could pay someone to say whatever you want them to say. But the facts are what matter here. And the only way to get those is to make them show their books. And if they refuse to show their books, don't give them the money. This, I mean, I think any rational person who's ever dealt with a few bucks gets this. You, 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 you want emphasis that on the words "rational person." <laughs> All right. Well, the answer to the first question is how much of a bailout was actually needed. We have no clue. So maybe this time around we'll get a clue. All right, the next the next thing I want to talk about because because it just keeps coming up, and every time it does, people make jokes about it. Mike DeWine uh, and others have said one of the key reasons that this deal was important is because they were protecting 1,500 jobs in the nuclear industry. So, so <laughs> I immediately think, wait a minute, wait a minute. It's my responsibility as a ratepayer to protect jobs. And then uh, Corey Schaefer immediately did the math, you know, dividing out a billion plus between the 1,500. And that's a lot of money to protect 1,500 jobs. That's a big fallacy. Yeah, somebody right? pointed out they could have just used that money to to pay off each one of these workers handsomely, you know, for like the next twenty years. Yeah, right, right. So, so can we can we say pretty clearly that's a bogus excuse? I mean, Mike DeWine almost pounded his fist on the table about these people didn't do anything to deserve it. These are their jobs. It's not my. It's not our responsibility to prop up failing utilities. That's well, just not part of the game. And, and on the other end of this, and what I think is really weird that nobody has really said, these 1,500 workers are also probably taxpayers of the state of Ohio. You know, they have every right to be as offended about this deal as everyone else. I mean, granted, there is some self-interest involved, but, 
you know, if I'm an employee and, and I find out I'm paying taxes in a state that's doing dirty deals like that, I mean, in any under any other industry, those employees would be furious. So, you know, it, it, I think saying like trying to brush it away by saying first energy is a job creator. I, I think that's kind of insulting to the employees in a way. It, yeah. it, it, I don't know. It's just the, it's, other, the other factor here is that how many green energy jobs did they kill through this bill? I mean, right. I don't think we can quantify that, but, you know, they did a lot to gut these incentives for yeah, green we should, energy. We should, a, we should pay a green energy expert to come in here and quantify it for us. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, the point is, this is a BS talking point that they threw out there because they thought it sounded good and it doesn't stand up to any kind of light on it because it's it's just, it's a phony argument. That's not what rates are set to do. The, the, the purpose of setting the rates isn't to preserve 1,500 jobs. It's, it's so, so when Mike DeWine trots that out with all that passion, it, he's bogus. All right. Next. Jeremy, the, the house is in disarray, right? The leader is a crook. They all look like stooges for having gone along with this. Some of the members that are on Team Householder were handpicked so that they would support this guy. So I know we're in the age of COVID, so you're not there. But I got to think that the mood of the house is is complete disarray. How does anything get done? Will anything get done before the November election when all the seats are up? Are we basically at a standstill in the house and the legislature through the end of the year? We were pretty much at a standstill going into it already. Like you say, it's an election <laughs> year. They were on summer. They're on summer break right now. I mean, so I mean, there was it was already a pretty slow, slim chance already, and now it's just about zero. Now that you have this power vacuum, this huge power vacuum in the house. Do, will they at least move forward on repealing this thing so that they can save some face? Because I would imagine going into the election, even though they're all in gerrymandered districts. This is the kind of thing that overcomes gerrymandered districts. So do you think they'll move quickly to repeal this so that they have at least some face saving come November? I think they will. I mean, well, it's so interesting because at the beginning of the year, you had DeWine talking about using his political capital for gun reform, and now he's using it to repeal the bill he signed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and we know what happened with gun reform. Nothing. Nothing. So, well, I, I yeah, know, they'll probably yeah. do that. And that's about it because they're not going to touch, uh, you know, they're not going to touch much else before they go into the election. OK. All right. So then another thing that's worth talking about that's been out there and hasn't really been discussed much is this misleading narrative of this bill providing a rate decrease for electric customers in Ohio. And and what what I find bogus about this is. They're saying, hey, this saved you money, even though we have a gigantic surcharge on your bill that's providing this billion dollars plus to prop up the nuclear plants. The simple fact is your rate is supposed to reflect the cost of getting power to you with the money needed to keep the utility in business. So if this bailout is not necessary or if it should be a lot smaller the decrease in your bill should have been a lot bigger. So to say that without this bill, your rates would go up, that's just bogus because the rates are supposed to be set based on logic. And if the PUC is saying, oh, well, we'll have to raise your rates if we take this away, it's like, well, wait a minute, there's a billion dollars now you have to play with. How does that not figure into a bigger rate decrease? Anybody want to debate me on that? 
No. Come on, Jeremy. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Well, one of the whole idea, the selling point behind this is that, well, we'll actually make it cheaper for consumers because we'll get rid of those pesky green energy fees that you pay to help renewable energy and energy efficiency. We'll get rid of those. So in the end, you'll save money because instead of those, you'll just pay money to corporations. And well, let me ask you this. How much green energy could we have bought with $360 million? $360 million is the amount First Energy spent on bribes and paying their investors after they got this big bailout. So if you just said, hey, there's $360 million First Energy clearly didn't need because they squandered it. How much green energy could we have gotten for that? That's a lot of money, right? It's a lot of money. And it, it just, you know, it, it's seed money for more and more projects. If you're giving these uh, standards, which basically tell utilities you have to get a certain percentage of your energy from green energy, then that leads to more wind projects, more solar projects, more renewable energy projects. Right. So, so this every time I hear, hey, hey, this bill saved you money. Right. But- if the PUC is doing its job, they should have saved you a lot more money because there's a there's a billion dollar plus cushion in there that clearly was not all needed to prop up those those nearly obsolete nuclear plants. So something to pay attention to is this thing moves down the the line. OK, here's here's a big one. The if First Energy it did what the Fed say and they spent 60 million dollars in bribes to get this done and now it's being repealed and the, the stock's have, uh, value have collapsed because of this dire news. The people running First Energy can be held accountable. So Chris Murnowski, there's a real chance that shareholders who have seen their, their value and their stock plummet can sue these guys and sue First Energy for some sort of malfeasance, right? Right. And it's worth noting that uh, on Friday, the the CEO of the company said that the company has done nothing unethical. They, they believe they've done nothing unethical and they claim that they are working with the Justice Department on this investigation. But with that said, if if there is wrongdoing found on behalf of the company, then it might find itself in in some hot water on the civil side of things as well, um, because their stock dropped on news of these arrests by about 40%, and which means their shareholders lost a lot of value in a very short period of time. And Corey Schaefer did a very terrific story uh, speaking to attorneys who actually specialize in this kind of law, um, who talked about the fact that there are two avenues of lawsuits that might come out of something like this. The first is basically says that people who buy stock in a company while its employees engage in wrongdoing that is later exposed can sue the company to recover at least some of the money they lost as a resulting drop in the resulting drop of stocks. Um, the other thing that they can do is if individual employees of the company are found who have engaged in criminal wrongdoing as part of uh, something like this, then um, they can also bring lawsuits against those people in an individual capacity. Um, both of these lawyers said that this would likely turn into a very big uh, class action lawsuit because shareholders are generally located all over the country. And, and so, you know, they would bring action into, you know, whatever respective court they live in. And, and you know, this is an interstate commerce issue, too. So, so, there's a, so there's a very strong financial reason 
for the CEO to get on the phone and say, we're, we did nothing unethical. Actually, he says, I'm not the CEO that's named in here. It's like, there's only one CEO. How yeah. can you not be the CEO? But he says, it's not me. Uh, so we'll put that. Well, and, and, and it's, it's, it's worth noting, like people who've asked why first energy isn't named in the, the original complaint, they're referred to as company a, and that's a clue, you know, that's, that's, that should let you know that, that first energy is being investigated, you know, in the criminal side of this thing. Now, whether anything comes from that remains to be seen and we'll find out, but right. you know, it, it's, you know, they, they, they're worried. I, I mean, you can tell they're worried. And, they and should be worried. And it's, and it's uh, you know, well, if, if, you, if you can go back and listen to the investors call, there was, there were a lot of investors talking about it. In fact, there was a moment where uh, the CEO said, well, we have 15 minutes left. Can we talk about the great earnings we had this quarter? Because that was pretty much dominated by questions from shareholders about what happened. Yeah, talk about our great quarter, even though it just plummeted. Look, Brent Larkin had a column saying that that it's been known for years that First Energy has, with its spending down in Columbus, pretty much determined energy policy, and it ended Tuesday. That that they are radioactive in every way possible, and no one, no legislator is going to want to get near them because of that. Jeremy, does that sound right to you? Do you think legislators will want to stay miles from First Energy money now? Well, definitely the part about utilities controlling Columbus for decades, that has definitely been true. Uh, on the other hand, money is money, whether it's coming from First Energy or for somewhere else. And yeah, even if First Energy is a little radioactive now, uh, in the next couple of election cycles, you know, if you see new people coming along, they're going to want campaign contributions because that's how you get elected. Well, First Energy has to survive a couple of campaign cycles and there's <laughs> there's some serious question about that now like the, the other thing is could we talk a little bit just for a few minutes about the definition of the word unethical i mean for the, for the ceo to say we did nothing unethical i want to remind everyone about those commercials that ran attacking the efforts to put this on the ballot it was red scare nonsense we talked about this in podcast back during the time it was over the top nonsense about China is trying to take away your rights and, you know, all this big, ugly language. Now, I would argue, because that was completely false, that that would meet the definition of unethical. And we now know that First Energy's money paid for that. So I'm having a hard time understanding how the CEO can harumph and pound the table and say, we did nothing unethical. What do you think? Not only not only that, in the complaint, it says that they showed these ads to First Energy executives, that at one point the CEO was driven out by Matt Borges to see some of these, uh, you know, petition collectors. So, I mean, it's in the complaint that it, they weren't just idling by just even or even just writing checks. They were taking a look at these ads as they were happening. Well, and there were there's there in the complaint it says there are just hundreds of phone calls between the top officials and that. But but what I'm saying is that and that's just one element of this was completely unethical. When you talk about sending people out to shake down petition signature gatherers or pay them off to stop doing it, I think most people would say that fits the definition of unethical and first energy paid for that. So so when you say we've done nothing unethical, 
th then you are coming up with a whole new definition for unethical compared to everything I've ever known. Or maybe they're speaking in a different language and it, it's got a completely different meaning in that language. Is anybody kind of seeing another side to this? I, I'm sure there's just a lot we don't know, Chris, a lot we don't know. <laughs> Well, All right. And I think ethics kind of go by the wayside when you stop also caring about the law. You know, I, it's, you know, we see we see ethics brought up a lot, especially, you know, when you think of like the current federal administration and and, and the sort of tone of politics now, it's like, wow, like you really think these people care about ethics when they're not really even paying attention to the law. So, you know, I, I think I think there's a lot of I think Andrew Tobias touched on this a little bit when we spoke to him earlier this week, which is, you know, there is, a, you know, and, and maybe Jeremy, you can attest to this too, that, you know, so much of what happens in these, these things are just kind of accepted as the norm by the people who, who sort of swim in those waters. And, and it, they have a hard time of, of viewing it as wrong because the guy next to them does it too. And, and, you know, sometimes we only know about this stuff by virtue of one person being caught or, you know, one enterprise being ousted. But what is it, you know, what else is going on that we don't know and understand? And, you know, what other companies have this kind of influence? You know, I, I, I don't know if you can address that at all, Jeremy. Well, I know there's a lot of cynicism uh, around uh, Capitol Square about what is ethical and what is not. But to have people literally physically intimidate people trying to exercise their democratic right to be on the ballot is kind of a, I mean, that's, that's a new low, right. <laughs> even, I, even I, by I, the standards of Columbus. I, I think you would be hard pressed to find anybody who's outside of this process to hear this set of facts and accept the claim by the CEO. They did nothing unethical. So I just wanted to throw the flag and say, we're calling you on that. Uh, here's another one. The, the, you know, first energy said, way back we can't we can't keep these nuclear plants afloat natural gas has gotten so cheap the cost of generating power at the nuclear plants is too high if we don't get some kind of subsidy we'll have to shutter them and then when natural gas prices go high we won't have energy independence with these nuclear plants that's the basic argument that they laid out so so now we hear all these allegations of how crooked they are and what they did to get this bill passed and it raises serious trust issues. Do you really want First Energy's hands on the nuclear power? And I haven't heard anybody suggest this, but I'm bringing it up as a, as a topic for discussion. What if they repeal this bill and when they come back to deal with preserving nuclear energy, which Mike DeWine thinks is so important, they said, okay, tell you what, First Energy, we'll buy the plants for you from you from whatever face value is, and then go find somebody ethical and trustworthy to run them. What, you know, instead of giving the money to First Energy because they're not going to show us their books and we can't trust them, have somebody you can trust do it. When, why not go down that road? You know, I'm sorry to say, I just, does anybody want to, to buy a nuclear power plant these days? Like, are there companies out there that would be eager to get into this business now? I mean, I just, well, I don't know the answer to that. With, with the subsidy from the state of Ohio for whatever is actually needed, and hopefully those numbers would come out in an honest process, you know, could you get an operator with, with the needed assistance from the state if you accept that that's, that's there to run it? I don't know. I just, the, do you really want First Energy 
running the nuclear plants now. I mean, we all remember the Davis-Bessey issue where they had a pineapple-sized hole in their reactor that they had let develop, and it was a an emergency situation that, that was under their their time. The, you know, should they be the ones? I just I, I never heard that come up during the first go round. Well, wait a minute, First Energy, you're saying you can't operate it we'll get somebody else to operate it and maybe we can do it more economically. It just struck me that earlier you described them as being radioactive. Okay. Well, <laughs> they did have a hole in the reactor. Well, but, I, but I think what you're, I think what you're touching on is actually a, a, it points to a much broader problem in the energy sector that, you know, we have too few companies with a lot of control, you know, you know, this, you know, first energy outside of, you know, Cleveland public power. I mean, there's, you know, how many other players are there willing to, to come in and do this? And, you know, there's, there has been so much consolidation of energy of, of companies buying up other companies and, 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 and large companies like first energy having a virtual monopoly over large, you know, large portions of the country. So, you know, it, it, it part of part of the inability to have options for somebody to come in and actually run it properly is a result of of you know a, a lot of antitrust th- things that antitrust people should be talking about. And, okay, I just I just want to put it on the record that I am not suggesting Cleveland Public Power run the <laughs> The last thing I think we want is the city of Cleveland controlling nuclear fission. You understand what I mean though, right? It, it's, yeah. you know, I mean, there's almost no competition, you know? I, I mean, know. some of, you know, some of this would be mitigated by the fact that if, if we had a choice to choose who provided us power, you know, First Energy might not be as, as powerful as, as it is in Columbus. And, and, you know, so that's as much a problem of, of consolidation in, in, in not only the energy industry, but all industries. You know, it, it's, you know, that's that's a big problem that I think the United States is going to have to reckon with, you know, not just in this issue, but for a lot of industries over the coming decades and years. All right. All right. I got one more I want to get into before we, we close down. DeWine and, and John Houston talked in both both times this came up about the importance of nuclear power as a zero carbon energy source. I mean, they, they just went on and on about this. And, and all I could think of was you hypocrites because you're the guys, especially DeWine in signing this bill that got rid of green energy. I know Houston talks about how he put together a great green energy plan, but the simple fact is the people that are running Ohio, have stopped us from having a green energy plan, which is really zero carbon. Because I don't think when you think about zero carbon, you're thinking about nuclear because, you know, that's not really the cleanest of energy. So so my question is, if first, and we talked touched on this earlier, if first energy really doesn't need the billion dollars, will DeWine and Houston, could they be pushed to commit the money that's not necessary there to go to real green energy. Well, I guess that depends on the lobbyists green energy have, you know? Oh, Jeremy, you're so cynical. Now, I I would think if, if, you know, there's any time that that they had leverage, it's it's now because of this disastrous scandal, you know? But what happened? But we had a, we had a wind farm project here that was going to go in Lake Erie. What happened with that? Well, it's not quite dead, but it's almost dead right. because so- of the board that Mike DeWine has some control over. But that's what I'm saying. They stood before all of Ohio twice 
and talked about how much they believe in nuclear because it's the only thing we have that's zero carbon when they have long been the guys who could have made a difference in having zero carbon energy and didn't do it. So so when they're when they're sitting there proselytizing about zero carbon, you know, it, it's false. It's not it's so now's the time. You want zero carbon? Let's get it. But it's sad that Jeremy's saying the only way it's going to happen is if they have good <laughs> lobbyists. It's like not the answer I was looking for. They didn't learn anything so far, right? Well, but that's but but again, that's the you know the reason that they're saying oh nuclear power is great is because first energy is in the nuclear power business. If first energy was in the wind business, I don't think they would care too much about the endangered birds they throw up uh, <laughs> to claim that these wind turbines are a bad idea. You know, it, it's it, it again, it, it's it it really touches on that very cynical idea that you know it's he who has the lobbyists has the you know gets the money. And, and I think that, you know, this, this sort of, this sort of controversy kind of hammers that home for a lot of people. I'm hoping that advocates for good government and good policy speak loudly during these next few months so that we actually have a fair-minded debate about what's best for energy policy. I do think First Energy is neutralized in this debate. So after decades of controlling energy policy, there's a vacuum now. But but Jeremy's probably right. It was just go to the highest bidder. <laughs> well, look, thank you all. I, I know uh, uh, doing a podcast late in the week as an extra episode is uh, is extra work. But this is a big issue. People are very interested in it. I think there's still a lot of questions that are unanswered. So thanks, Jane. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Jeremy. You're doing great work. Keep it up. This week in the CLE, we'll back, be back with a regular episode come Monday. <laughs> <laughs>